0: Gospel of John, chapter 3. I mean, looking at verses 1 through 15 this morning, I was telling Martin, uh, I was kind of glad to get over uh, and through John chapter 2, particularly the end, because there's not many passages in the Bible where you see Jesus turning over tables and driving out people with a whip. Uh, and so that was a pretty strong passage. But then I started looking at the passage that we're going to look at this morning. And I'm not so sure that this passage is not uh, more frightening in a sense. Not stronger than what we saw last week. So follow along with me as I read and I think you'll see what I mean. This is John chapter 3 verses 1 through 15. This is God's holy and inspired word. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to... If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord, stands forever. Let's pray and ask God to come and help us this morning. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing to you. Help us, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. This story obviously had a tremendous impact on Nicodemus. Think about it. Look at verse 7. It says, Jesus looks at him and says, Do not marvel. So what's the implication? Nicodemus was marveling. Another way to say it is he was astonished. His jaw was on the floor as he was hearing Jesus talk about these things. Not only that, we learn that Nicodemus... He was confused by this passage and what Jesus was saying to him. If you look at verse 9, how in the world can these things be? And what's interesting is that we don't know all of Nicodemus's story, but at some point, uh, he was not confused. At some point, all of this clicked for him, what Jesus was telling him in this passage. At some point along the way in his life, Nicodemus was changed. You might say, well, how do we know? Well, what's interesting is Nicodemus shows up again at the end of John 19. At the end of the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 39, it's Nicodemus who goes with Joseph of Arimathea to anoint Jesus for burial. And listen to what it says. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. Remember, John makes a point to say that Nicodemus came by night in this passage. He came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. I find it extremely uh, interesting that the other Gospels begin by wise men bringing myrrh to Jesus. And the Gospel of John ends with a wise man, a, a man who thought he was wise, bringing myrrh to Jesus bringing the same gifts to the Lord Jesus John is making it very clear that he is now changed that he is now a follower of Jesus and so the question is how in the world did that happen how was he changed in John chapter 3 we don't know the whole story of Nicodemus but this passage shows us three very important elements that are involved in following Jesus Three elements that are involved in following Jesus. That's what we see in this passage. And we see three things. That involved in following Jesus is repentance, humility, and lastly, we'll see faith is involved. So let's look at those three this morning. Look at repentance, number one. What is repentance? Let me define that. That just simply means turning away from. And when we think of that term, normally we think of the really bad things that we need to turn away from, things that we're doing wrong. And of course, we need to be turning away from those things. But we also, as this passage teaches us, we need to be turning away from the good things as well. And by good things, I mean the things that we are looking to in our life that we oftentimes don't even know to give us a sense of, be, a sense of being okay, a sense of being right, right? And so how do we see that in this passage, this idea of repenting of our goodness? Well, look at verse 1. That's not a long verse, but it tells us a whole lot about who Nicodemus is. A Pharisee, and so he was a ruler of what was called the serious party, because they were serious about their religion. He was a ruler of the Jews. And any first century reader would look at this, And they would immediately know that this meant that Nicodemus had it going on. He had all the religious credentials. He was obviously highly regarded as someone who knew the Bible. Notice, the teacher in Israel. He had a lot of knowledge. He knew his Bible. He was a part of the serious party. He was moral. He was a good guy. He tried to follow the law. A ruler. So he had Great power in the community. And being a ruler meant that he also had great wealth. And so he was extremely wealthy. And we know that from John 19. Seventy-five pounds of myrrh was a fortune to bring to a burial. And so Nicodemus, we got to get this, okay? Nicodemus was the man. Very respected in his community. Nicodemus had it all together. He was well connected with folks. We would have wanted to hang out with Nicodemus and we would have wanted to have our children play with his children. Look at verse 2. He comes to Jesus and he says, Okay, Jesus, you're a good teacher. Notice how he approaches him strictly as a teacher. And he says, and it appears by the things you're doing, I'll give it that seems to be God is with you. Okay, most of America, if we were to poll them on who Jesus is, they would say exactly what Nicodemus says. Yeah, he's a good teacher, and he did some great things, and it appears that God might have been with him. They wouldn't say necessarily that he was God. We don't get that here either. But we get that Nicodemus shows great respect. He's a kind man, and he's coming to Jesus uh, not out of, you know, he's not bitter or, you know, trying to get him. He's just coming uh, in admiration. And look at verse 3 at how Jesus responds. Very interesting. Jesus doesn't say thank you. There's no sense of warmness here. Thank you for your compliment or let me ask you a question. How are you doing? No, Jesus responds forcefully and it's almost a rebuke. Look at what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, you've got to be born, to, born again to even see the kingdom of God. Now, why in the world would Jesus respond this way to Nicodemus, who is coming uh, in a good way to him? Very simply. Nicodemus didn't didn't need anything. Nicodemus was coming to Jesus as simply an add-on. He wanted Jesus to be his busboy. Hey, I'm a good teacher, I've heard you're a really good teacher, and you can help make my life a little bit better. And Jesus has no part of it. Jesus gets extremely personal because he is trying to get Nicodemus to see that he is not quite as good as he thinks he is. And that he must approach him, Jesus, primarily, not as a teacher, but as a savior. You see, he's trying to get Nicodemus to see that he is needy. And he has no clue that he needs something, that he needs Jesus to rescue him. I don't know about you, but that should serve, that should sober us up this morning. That should serve as a warning to us this morning, because think about it. Jesus is talking to someone Nicodemus, who believes he's already a part of God's people. Nicodemus has heard all the sermons. He can speak the lingo. He's read all the books. He's grown up with this stuff for as long as he can remember. He thinks he's in. And Jesus says that he's out. Whoa. And there's a lot we could say, but what what do we learn from this? Well, I think one of the biggest things that this teaches us is the things that you are the most proud of in your life, that might very well be your biggest liability. Brian Habig was an RUF campus minister at Vanderbilt University, and he tells a story about a young man that was in his ministry that was a part of his core group. And he loved this guy, and he said he had everything going for him. Uh, He was sharp, he was good-looking, he was charming and funny and well-mannered. He was the kind of guy that you would want your daughter to marry and to bring home. That's how good a guy he was. And he says as he got to know this student, it, it came out that this student had really been impacted at some point in his life by an older elderly man in a conversation he had with him. And he said this elderly man looked at him at one point and said, You have so much going for you. You're bright, so handsome. You are so sharp and smart, and you are so good with people and with your words. But what makes me nervous is that you have some real strikes against you. And he went on and he said, The strikes against you are, you're so handsome. You're so bright, you're so smart, you're so good with people and with your words. You see what he's saying, don't you? That sometimes, that what we think is our greatest asset might be the liability. In other words, the things that perhaps you and I need to repent of the most this morning is the things that we like most about ourselves. Why would I say that? Well, because think about it. Those are the things that we lean into when the wills start to come off in our life. We lean into those things and it causes us to be self-sufficient. It causes us to think that we don't need anything. And so the question this morning is, what are you most proud about in your life? Or to ask it another way, what is the thing in your life that you're smug about? What is the thing in your life that you look down on other people about? Maybe it's the fact that you have social charisma, that you can work a room, that you can go into any party and work the room, and by the end of the party, you're the life of the party. Or maybe it's your wealth. You don't need anything. Because you've already got it all. You don't have to worry about debt. You don't have to worry about a car. You don't have to worry about how much you're going to spend. Or maybe this morning, it's you're most proud of your kids. You see, in the eyes of the world, your kids have it going on. And so ever so subtly, you start to lean into and you start to think, that is what makes me okay. My kids are okay. And ever so slightly, you start to look down your nose at other people whose kids maybe aren't okay. Or whose kids aren't as well behaved. You see, like Nicodemus, he had power and wealth and money and knowledge. We too have things in our life that we tend to look at to say, that makes me okay. What is it in your life that you're looking down on other people about this morning? And chances are, that is your biggest problem. Why? Because it keeps you from being needy. Friends, Jesus came for sinners. He didn't come for the good people. And if you look at the Bible, all throughout the Gospels, you see that The one thing that kept Jesus away from people was not their sin. It was their goodness. It was their sense of being right that they knew it all and didn't need anything. Secondly, humility. Look at verses 4 through 9. And so think about this. Those verses, some of us have read those. For many years and we don't think about it but think about how this might have sounded and maybe it sounds like some of you that uh, maybe this is the first time you've read this passage. Verses 4 through 9 Jesus tells Nicodemus he must be born again and Nicodemus takes him literally what are you talking about born again so I need to go back in my mother's womb I'm old that doesn't make any sense to me. And then he starts talking about this image of the wind blowing and comparing it to the Holy Spirit. What in the world does this mean? Let me try to explain. Jesus very clearly is saying this. To be a Christian, God must change your heart. That no amount of moral effort, no amount of Bible knowledge or goodness can put you on good terms with God. That's what he's saying. Think about the illustration and it makes total sense. He says, "Nicodemus, you got to be born again." And that phrase is we've heard it for years being, you know, a born again Christian or whatever. What in the world? It's confusing, but it doesn't have to be because think about it this way. It's an illustration he's using, and here it is. What did you have to do with your birth? Nothing. You had absolutely you had absolutely nothing to do With you being born. It was a gift. It was a gift of life that you've been given. Look at verse 8. He gives another illustration from everyday life with the wind. Can you control the wind? No. If you were standing out in the middle of the field, you couldn't control the wind, but you would know that it was hitting you. You could feel it. And you could see it moving things around, but you could not control it. And Jesus says, so it is with the Holy Spirit. He blows in when he wants to. You cannot manipulate the Holy Spirit, but you are completely dependent upon a power from outside you to come into your life and do what you cannot do for yourself. And so what does that mean this morning? Well, a couple of applications that we could make from this. But one thing is if, is, is, this. If you are here this morning, and you are a Christian, you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and you have faith, you are a miracle. That is a miracle. And because of that, if you really understood, and we really understood this passage, we would be the most humble people, Christians, would be the most humble people on the face of the earth. And how in the world could we, if faith is a gift, How in the world could anyone look down on another person for not believing? Or how could we look down on other people who have a certain lifestyle or live a certain way or do things differently before they actually have life in Jesus? Before Jesus has actually turned on their heart and made it alive? How could we expect them to live a certain way? And we often do that, don't we? You see, Jesus is telling Nicodemus that salvation is by grace alone. No moral effort. We cannot earn it. We cannot merit it. We have to have help from the outside. And again, we could talk forever about this, but why do we need help from the outside? Well, because the Bible says in Ephesians 2 that we're dead. That we're spiritually dead. And the last time I checked, dead people don't do anything. They don't move. Romans 3. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, not even one. Translation, the Bible says that before Jesus comes and turns the lights on in our heart, we are completely helpless. Completely desperate for him to break in and rescue us and do what we can't do. And then the question is this. Okay, I hear that, Jason, but wait just a second. If you're telling me that it is an act of God to enable me to even see the kingdom of God, if that's what you're saying, and that what I need most I cannot do for myself because it is an act of God's free grace, then what do I do while I wait? What am I supposed to be doing now? Do I just simply... Wait for God to come in my life? Well, you know, it is true we can't control God. But the Bible also is very clear that there are certain places that God likes to hang out. There are certain places that God tends to show up in a person's life. All throughout the Bible, we see things like this. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's First Peter 5. And then the very next verse is, Therefore, humble yourselves. Notice it doesn't say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, just sit and do nothing and wait. No, no, it says, you have a responsibility. Humble yourself before God's mighty hand and before His power. Psalm 51. A broken and a contrite heart God will not despise. Isaiah 42, a bruised reed. He will not break. All throughout the Bible, friends, we see that God is moved by desperation. He's moved by brokenness. He is not moved at our attempts to do better and, and by our goodness. It is our need. That is the very thing that turn, turns God's heart towards our, our own. And so then you think, well, okay, then. but tell me what I need to do. Well, the answer is the same if you're a Christian or if you're not a Christian this morning. Pray. Ask God for help. Patrick said it earlier. God likes to be asked. And you might think, well, what do I pray? I don't know how to pray. I've never prayed. One word. Help. Help. God, help me. Come into my life and do what I cannot do for myself. And friends. Yes we can't control God. But that is a prayer that God sure loves to answer. And if you don't believe me. Try it. Try it. Go to God. And give up hope in yourself. And cry out for mercy. And see what happens. Thirdly. And finally, faith. Look at verses 13 through 17. So following Jesus, it involves repentance, and it involves humility, and it lastly involves faith. Look at verses 13 through 17. Jesus brings to Nicodemus uh, these images and really puts him face-to-face with his needs, that he needs to be born again. And then he tells him how to be born again. And he uses, I think this is amazing, I'm just continuing continually amazed by the Bible. So Jesus puts forth this image to Nicodemus that he would have known like the back of his hand. The whole serpent deal, that comes from Numbers chapter 21. And remember that passage where the Israelites, as they tended to do, they were grumbling against God. And because they were grumbling, God sent judgment on the camp. And the judgment was poisonous vipers poisonous snakes into the camp and they started to bite the people and they started to die and Moses goes and he says God no what are you doing please help us please save the people and then God gives him this bizarre thing to do and says go make a bronze serpent put it on the end of a pole hold it up in the camp and then when people look at the serpent they will be healed and that's what he did and the people were healed And when you know that story, look at verse 14. It starts to make a whole lot more sense, doesn't it? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. That is amazing. Because Jesus is saying that story in Numbers 21 was about him. And so what's the connection between Jesus and the bronze serpent? Well... John chapter 3, we see that Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you've got to look at me by faith. You've got to look at the cross and what I have done for you. And like those serpents, you have been infected with something called sin. And you need to be healed. And the only way you can be healed is if you look at me hanging on a pole. Me hanging on a cross. Shedding blood, doing for you what you could never do for yourself. Dying on a cross so that you could have life. You see, it's only when we look by faith to Jesus is our heart taken from death to life. That's how you're born again. And maybe this morning you're saying, Jason, I want to believe that so badly, but I don't have enough faith. Friends, this is very important. Christianity, and this will save you a lot of pain and a lot of ups and downs and lack of assurance in your life. Christianity is not about the quality of your faith. If it were, we would all be toast. Think about it. The quality of our faith like this. No, no, no. Christianity is about the object of your faith. It's about Jesus. Think about the Israelites. They had doubts. They procrastinated and rationalized, and none of them believed with the same quality, but they looked, and they were healed. Friends, don't look at the quality of your look. Look at Jesus. Maybe this morning you're thinking, Jason, but you don't know me. You don't know the things that I've done. You don't know the places I've been. There is no way on earth that Jesus would have anything to do with me if he really knew me. Think back at the story. It didn't matter how badly the Israelites were bitten. It didn't matter if they were on death's door, if they had, uh, they were how sick they were, or how many times they had been bitten, how were they healed. Look. Look at Jesus by a simple look in faith. And so likewise this morning, it does not matter how badly you've blown it. Christ, look at him and he will heal you. And he will rescue you. There's a man by the name of David Ireland. And he was married and he and his wife had tried for years to have children. And finally his wife became pregnant. But shortly after she was pregnant with their son, he was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. And it zapped his body very quickly. And he realized that he was not going to be around when his son was born. Uh, that it was taking its toll on him, and so he decided to write letters in order to raise his son who would not know him. And so he combined all those letters in a book called Letters to an Unborn Child. And in one of the letters, he is explaining to his son about his mother. And listen to what he says. My child, I want you to know what your mother is like. She's absolutely incredible. And I think that I can make it clear by just telling you what she has to do when we go out to eat. When we go out to a restaurant, this is what she has to do. Because I'm paralyzed from the neck down, I'm in a a wheelchair, she has to bathe me, dress me, empty the urine and fecal bags that are strapped to my legs. She has to put me in the wheelchair and drive out to the garage and open the garage and open the door and get out of board and put my arm on, uh, on my chair, slide me across the board, put me in the car, put down the arm, fold up the chair, open the trunk, put in the chair, close the trunk, close the door, get in the car, back it out, close the garage door, and drive to the restaurant. And when we get to the restaurant, the whole process is completely reversed. And then we go and we sit down to eat, and she feeds me and wipes the drool that's coming out of my mouth because I can barely eat. And then she gets up and pays the check. And then the whole process is reversed. But then, son, when we get home, she puts on my pajamas and lays me in our bed, and these are her last words to me. Thank you, honey, for taking me out on a date tonight. Friends, there is no better picture of John chapter 3 than that story. Because like David Ireland, life only comes to you if someone else does it all. Friends, Jesus has done absolutely everything from beginning to end so that he could have the joy of being with you. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Father, you give us hard words this morning, but you give them because you love us. And so would you give us the gift of repentance? Would you give us the gift of repentance for the bad things, but also the good things that we're looking to that are undermining your work in our life? Show us our need. Give us faith. Help us, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.